0: So today, of course, is Palm Sunday, and I wanted to share with you some thoughts on a passage that occurs at the beginning of Easter week, the day before Jesus enters Jerusalem on a donkey, and he's hailed as the King of Israel, which is what we, traditionally in the calendar, you'd celebrate today. But I felt drawn to a passage uh, just before that, which is in John chapter 12. I want to read it to you in its entirety, and then we're just going to go through it. Line by line, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus's honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus's feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor, it was worth a year's wages. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Now I realize that if you've been in church a little while, then this is quite a familiar story. Um, And before I go any further, I just want to pray because sometimes our familiar, our familiar, that word, um, (laughs) means that we kind of, uh, we miss some things because we just read it. And so I just want to pray that our familiarity doesn't get in the way of what God wants to say to us this morning. Okay. So Father, we just, we want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you for those uh, listening here who kind of could tell this story could probably even talk to people about it and give some insight on it but father we just ask lord we want to see afresh in your word this morning we want to have eyes to see what you want to say we don't want to get bogged down in what we might think or what might be there we want to see afresh and so father we're asking for fresh insight this morning into your word in jesus name So I want to explore this story, but I also want to explore the characters in the story because there are some fascinating things going on in the characters in the story, as well as some incredible insight when you understand something of its cultural and historical context. If you've been with us at Life Groups, we've been um, just learning about that one of the challenges of the Bible is that we are reading a 2,000-year-old text, or 3,000 year old text in places, even older, set in a culture and time very different to ours, and yet we often read it through our Western 21st century lens, which means we miss all sorts of the detail, and one of the things with reading the Bible, and especially actually with, with John's gospel, is that you often find there's lots of bits that you'd like to know about, there's lots of bits that are not there, but what that means is the bits that are there, are there for a reason. So even the little lines are really important and tell you something. And um, and so this morning, I want to hopefully bring out some of that detail that's perhaps easy to skip over and hopefully will illuminate it, or the Holy Spirit will illuminate it in a a new and fresh way. So let's start with verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So, which seems like a very kind of like, okay, that's an interesting word, um, but actually it's really loaded because it's a real introduction to what's going to happen later on in the story. Um, so, first of all, this is six days before the Passover, so um, this is basically just a few days before Jesus will die, and although Jesus may well be aware of it, none of the others around the table really know what's coming, even though he's told them about it, um, Uh, They might have an inkling, but I don't think they think it's going to turn out how it turns out. Um, And that detail is important for making sense of something later on. We also know that Jesus is in Bethany. Bethany means house of poverty. So in the house of poverty, there sits a very rich man called Lazarus, rich in the sense that he's been resurrected. So you've got this house of poverty, but you've got this very rich man who has literally had his life given back to him. So in this poor place, you've got this very rich person in the sense of his received life because he's been raised from the dead. And that's a hint about what's going to unfold in this story. It's a multi-layered story about poverty and prosperity, about loss and gain, about death and resurrection. But most of all, it's a story about restraint and wild abandonment. And it's a story about whether we are limited Or whether we are limitless. And really that's the question I want to ask this morning. Do we move in limited ways? And really the answer is yes. But to what extent do we move in limited ways? Or to what extent are we restrained or willing to move in what I would call wild abandonment? Verse 2. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. So there's people that are gathering. We enjoy, celebrate, honor Jesus. It's an interesting crowd. We know from versions of this story in Matthew and Mark that he was probably at the house of a man called Simon the leper. Uh, we presume he's healed, otherwise they wouldn't all be in his house. Um, so you've got Simon there who's healed of leprosy. Um, leprosy meant you were an outcast because it was a skin disease you would have to self-isolate we know a bit more about what that means these days Um, but just imagine self-isolating your whole life because you've got this infectious disease that can never be cured like we struggled for like a a few weeks a few months Simon his whole life but he sees Jesus and gets healed and restored so he's loving life Lazarus is dead and he's back to life so he's loving life um, so you've got some real characters, and, and you've got people who, and of course, that attracts a crowd. In fact, it says later on, we, we won't get to it, that um, the, the, the chief priests wanted to kill Lazarus because so many people were coming and asking him about Jesus. The poor guy, had not wrong. He didn't ask to get raised from dead. He just got called out of the tomb, came back to life again, and then people are plotting to kill him. Poor bloke, he's just got blessed. So there's a fascinating crowd of people. Then there's Mary and Martha, Two ladies who, we've, who, who we know a little bit about, they were Lazarus' sisters. And uh in the previous chapter, there's a whole story about them and their interaction. But they're also recorded in, in Luke's gospel, in Luke 10. They were close friends of Jesus and welcomed him into at their home. But notice the little two words, Martha served. Well, if you know the story, you can go back to Luke 10 and you find a very similar story. And in Luke 10, you read that Jesus has entered their home and he starts teaching and sharing. And Martha back then was, it says, distracted by all the preparations whilst Mary sat listening to what he said. And this incident seems to be from the narrative before this. So there's been a time before this moment we're looking at. They're in the house. Martha's, you know, she's in the kitchen making dinner, making a cup of tea, whatever she's doing. Mary, though, is sat at the feet of Jesus just listening. And Martha gets a bit upset. She says, Lord, don't you care? My sister's left me to do all the work by myself. Tell her to help me. And most of you will know Jesus' answer. Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things. But few things are needed. Or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better. So Martha was slaving away, trying to make sure everything was just so for Jesus whilst Mary was enjoying being with Jesus, just listening to him. Which made me think about this. How often do we get caught up in doing things for Jesus as opposed to doing things because we're with Jesus? You see, I remember um, watching um, an online uh, service a little while ago, a number of months ago now. I think it was, kind of June, July time when churches were just reopening. And the person leading the meeting said something like, oh, it's so difficult to get the right vibe or atmosphere when there's just a few of us. And my heart kind of went out to them because I realized that they'd fallen into the trap of trying to create an atmosphere that Jesus could inhabit rather than enjoying the atmosphere he already does. You see, they were working really hard for Jesus. Trying to make a place where Jesus could come into rather than just resting and being with Jesus. And of course, we fall into that trap. In fact, many. Um, no, let's not go there. But how often do we do that? In what ways do we slave away for Jesus rather than say he's for you as a son? In what ways do we try and create an atmosphere for him instead of enjoying the atmosphere he's already present in? Now of course atmospheres, environments, they're important. So, you know, there's a reason I do this and Nathan Ellie do that. It's about creating the right environment. Okay? There's a reason Faye plays the piano and I don't. It's about creating the environment. But but we've got to be careful that if we're not careful, we've we've come to a point now particularly in our westernized Christianity where if you were to go to a meeting that had more than two or 300 people there you would expect certain things you would expect probably a big screen up there you would expect the lights to be right you would expect the sound to be right you would expect all these sorts of things to be right because we've come to expect that when we gather we need these things to worship Jesus because that's what we've kind of done the church has moved much of it to this place of production and now I'm hearing lots about oh, we've got to move away from that okay well that's wonderful because I think we do need to move away from that because if we can't, the problem is and one of the things I've loved about one of the things I've loved about not being able to sing together is it's forced us to find different ways to do it. But that's helpful, because when you are at home on your own, there's just you in the choir. So maybe me having a big band up here and getting everything all fancy ain't helpful for you, because then when you go home, you're like, "Well, I can't worship Jesus because it has to be like that. You see, you know, at some point we'll get everybody back and it'll be great. But then, you know what, in a little while, there might be some Sundays where I go, you know what, we're not having any here We're just going to go back and be quiet together again. Because I don't want to lose that. Because there's something very powerful about that. There's very, very powerful about actually you learning that wherever I am, even when I'm sat in my room, I can be in qu- and I can feel him, I can sense him, I can know him, I can hear him. But listen, don't miss out on his daily presence because you're so consumed with serving him. It, it fascinates me that, again, lots of churches this time, they're talking about scaling some things back. Some churches are talking about totally doing away with Sunday morning meetings, totally doing away with them, just having like every three months they'll come together to celebrate because they're just going to go to home groups and this and that. And some of that's probably fantastic. I, I, have, I, I can't comment whether it's good or not because I'm not them and they've got to do what they feel called to do. But the point of it is this, a lot of that, a lot of that scaling back is because they've had volunteer teams or staff members and and they've got all these things going on and everybody's so into it, but now everybody's so tired and they've realized that they've not done it for a year, they've realized it's really nice not doing it, so now they have to kind of scale it all back. But it fascinates me that many people get drawn to places where they can do a job and fulfill a role. So one of the reasons, if I, if I was to start a new church and my sole aim was to make it big, I would put on a number of social outreach programs and give people places to serve. Because that would draw people, because then they feel like they're doing something for Jesus. That's what I'd do. It wouldn't be difficult. You could grow it quite fast. But here's the thing. When you do that, and people work for Jesus, they then get all their identity from that very thing. And then they start to live out from that thing. But the thing is, when that thing stops, they don't have a clue of the air. When it has to cease, or they, they, they get older and life changes and they can't do it anymore, suddenly they're like, but, but all my life's aged in this thing. This is who I am. So of course the deeper challenge is to actually make sure that we find ourselves in him and come out of that place. To Matthew was serving, and demanding others moved away from sitting with Jesus to serving. He said, "Few things are needed, are indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better." Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with serving. We should all be serving in one way or another. But when our identity comes from our serving, we've got it the wrong way around. When our sense of worth and importance and value comes from what we do, even in a church place. And we go, well, it's a Christian thing. I work for a Christian charity. Oh, well, that's wonderful. And you're doing wonderful work. But if you're not found in Jesus, it doesn't really matter. It's wonderful. You bring in the kingdom and that's fantastic. But actually, if if you can't give all that up and know that you were found in Jesus, there's a problem. You see, I know, if I'd have, if I'd have started um, you know, the bereavement thing that we that we did together, that we, that we launched a couple of years ago and, and reached that, and now the mailbox thing. If I'd have done that five or six years ago, I would have found much of my identity in that. And I would have found much of my affirmation in it. I'd have found much of whether I was valued in it, if it went well or didn't go well, depending on how many people volunteered and how many people we reached and all that. And it would have really kind of done me it would have felt like it did me good, but it would have done me terribly. But of course, once you've learned to find yourself in Him, and then you start doing things, it's just a whole other ball game. I don't say it doesn't challenge you on many fronts, but it's a whole other ball game. But listen, what are we doing for Jesus, and what are we doing with Jesus? And then just a final thought on this verse. When Jesus has this conversation with Mary and Martha in Luke 10 in their home, it seems it's quite some time before this meal that we're reading about. Perhaps months before this meal, Jesus entered their home and shared with Martha about what's important. And yet here we are a few months down the line. And what do we find Martha doing? Serving. She's still in the kitchen. She's still not sat at his feet. She's still in that place. We sometimes find it very hard to leave old ways behind. Martha had an actual conversation with Jesus. The literal physical Jesus. And she didn't quite manage to hear him. And put it into practice. Because she's still it seems not sitting and listening. But she's still working away. I wonder whether you've taken at heart his words. About sitting And listening. Or whether you've heard him but you're just kind of carrying on. Please don't ignore the voice of Jesus, to you? It always works out better when we listen and act on what he says to us. Maybe I'm being harsh on her. Maybe she was going to go sit with him next. But those words just jumped out on me. She's still serving. Verse 3. Then Mary took a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. Okay, remember where we are. We're in Bethany, house of poverty, for a meal in honor of Jesus. Some say a pint of pure nard was worth a year's wages. Think about what a year's wages is to you. Think about that figure in your head, and then think about buying a bottle of perfume and pouring it on Jesus' feet. And then think about this, because then it says she dries it with her hair. Big deal, she dries it with her hair. But this is highly provocative in all sorts of ways. And would have caused many of those present to be deeply challenged. Martha's there, probably still smiling that she's doing all the prep on her own, and now her sister takes center stage with this extravagant, over-the-top, outpouring of adoration, probably muttering to herself in the kitchen. (laughs) Lazarus and Simon are there. They've been literally given their lives back by Jesus. I mean, Lazarus literally given his life back by Jesus. So maybe they don't have such an issue of expensive perfume after all what price can you put on getting your life back but at the same time they're men and part of what Mary does would perhaps not have been so helpful to them as men because in order to wipe Jesus' feet with her hair she'd have had to lay it down well what does that mean 2,000 years ago well to let your hair down and then use your hair to wipe another man's feet in public was a huge move. Imagine, let's try and put it in a 21st century setting. Imagine being at a very polite and well-to-do dinner party. Very polite and well-to-do. Guys are all dressed up in the tuxedos. The girls are all in the very long, flowing ball gowns. Everybody looks stunning. And then a lady comes along. She gets a dress. And she keeps going. Just, and then she goes with a dress up here and she sits on the lap of the host that's why you're meant to let your hair down in Jesus' day There is one provocative statement of intent so it's not only the sense of the cost of the ointment but everybody in the room is thinking what is she doing and then they're thinking "And well, why is he letting her do it I don't believe there was anything other than total devotion to Jesus in Mary's act. But you get the sense, the sense of shame, the sense of what you're doing, the sense of you don't do that in public. That is totally out of order. It's wrong. It's not to be done in our culture. She doesn't perhaps realize it, but of course, prophetically, she's acting out what will happen in a few days' time when his dead body will be anointed with oils and spices. She loves Jesus. And she is more concerned with loving him than her bank balance or what everyone around her thinks if that doesn't challenge us, I'm not sure what will. But as often happens, someone eventually voices what most people in the room are thinking. Verse 4. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later betrayed to him, objected. Well, there'll always be people who object. I think we've learned that in the last few years, haven't we? <laughs> there'll always be somebody disagree with you. Somebody will be upset and decide to object uh, but there'll always be somebody who will object when we choose to love people and others with such wild abandon. Our challenge is to make sure that even though they object, we continue to love them, bless them, and care for them. Our other challenge is to navigate through their objection with grace and truth, which is, of course, exactly what Jesus did verse 5? Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, a keeper of the money bag. He used to help himself to what was put in it. You see, when we see people express levels of devotion and love, we often use excuses and hide behind other reasons to try and make ourselves look good or at least make ourselves look less bad. Think of it on a real simple Example, I don't know. Somebody buys somebody that's important to you something nice and you've not bought them anything in a a little while and they really enjoy it and receive it. Something happens in you at that moment, in nearly all of us that's like, oh, we try and make excuses why we've not done that, why we've not, you know, simple as you know. A friend buys somebody some flowers and somebody goes, it's been a long time since you bought me some. Well, we'll find a way to excuse ourselves, to get around it, to get ourselves out of it, to find out why we've, we've not done that. There's something highly disconcerting for many of us when we see what we consider to be deep expressions of love and emotion. For many of us, it, it's disconcerting. That's because most of us are limited and measured, and we tell ourselves this is a great quality because it means we steward what we have well. And stewardship is, of course, important. But it might also do us good to reflect on Jesus' response to Mary. Because we know that Judas wasn't really bothered about the poor. We do know that Jesus was deeply concerned about the poor. I mean, I mean, he talks about it all the time. He's always reaching out about injustice and the oppressed and the poor and the needy. It's like his whole, his whole mission. So I'm sure many in the room, and perhaps many of us, would agree with Judas' sentiment. A, a, a year's wage, that that could do a lot for the poor, Jesus. That could do all well sorts. What a difference that would make. But Jesus doesn't side with Judas. He says this, leave her alone. It was intended she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You'll always have the poor among you, but you won't always have me. Commentators seem to agree that it's really difficult to translate what John really means in these words. But it's clear that he doesn't tell her off. He doesn't admonish her. Perhaps there act is this prophetic statement about the fact that before long Jesus will be buried and buried so hastily that there might not be time for him to receive it then so hey, maybe you should have it now. Perhaps it's a lesson that we shouldn't leave it too late to one of those around us so we don't wait until a time when they are no longer with us to express our love and appreciation to them. This can sometimes happen. Perhaps today is the day to say thank you. Perhaps today is the day to recognize people. Perhaps today is the day Perhaps both of those things are true, but that's not really the key element of the story. The challenge of this story is really about which of these characters we see ourselves in. And perhaps all three of them in different ways. Martha, serving hard and working for Jesus. So caught up in her serving that she's missing any time with Jesus. Which often means that Jesus feels quite distant because you're never in the same room as him as it were you're an onlooker or an outsider who's looking in on Jesus or on other people sat around being with Jesus and you're doing what you think's right but actually you long just to be in the room with him, not just kind of serving him. Mary, in a limitless, passionate, don't care what anybody else thinks, not bothered if it makes people feel uncomfortable, devotion to Jesus, she loves him and she is willing to spend her time, her reputation and her life savings on him. Or perhaps part of you, and in truth there is a part of each of us that I think is like this, are the more measured, limited, cautious, prudent Judas. Who wasn't all bad, of course. Even when he leaves the Passover meal to betray Jesus, the other disciples assume he's gone to give money to the poor. They wouldn't make that assumption unless he'd done it on a regular basis. He wasn't all bad. He wasn't all terrible. But as we enter Easter, it does us good to reflect what parts of us are still measured, limited, prudent, cautious in our love for Jesus? And we could say it this way, to what extent have we embraced a limitless, passionate, don't care what anyone else thinks, not bothered if it makes people feel uncomfortable, devotion to Jesus? To what extent are we willing to spend our time, our reputation, and our life savings on him. Now almost all of us will recognize we're somewhere on that journey. And hopefully we're wanting to move forward. But let me finish with this thought. If you are in the room that day. Imagine you're around the table. There's Lazarus. There's Simon. There's Mary. There's Martha in the kitchen. There's Jesus. There's others. And you watch Mary do this thing. How would you feel? I wonder whether most of us would experience some conflicting emotions. Perhaps part of us would be, oh, that's wonderful, but perhaps very quickly another thought might arise, like, well, why didn't I think to do that and, and why was I not willing to do that, which can very easily and quickly be followed by a criticism of Mary as we seek to make ourselves better about the limits, caution, and prudence we live under. Just be very aware that those who live more limitless, passionate, devoted, not bothered what people think, lives to Jesus are often the ones that touch us in a very sore spot because their seemingly limitless passion for Jesus shows up our lack. And for most of us who want to be like Jesus, it's a very sensitive place to be prodded. And before you criticize anyone else's passion, And displays of love and affection for Jesus. Just make sure you check your own heart. And explore why you feel that sense of upset. Building up in you. Because sometimes. The Mary in us. Wants to be like the Mary we see. And other times the Judas in us. Wants to criticize what we see. To make ourselves feel better. And we need, it's a fascinating thing, we need people who are more like Mary than we are. And yet we also find it really hard sometimes because we don't kind of, because they challenge us and provoke us and prod us all the time. And we find that deeply painful at times. But in what ways is God gently nudging you or perhaps not so gently nudging you to express a more limitless, passionate, devoted, not as bothered what people think and not as concerned about your reputation, love for him. What might that mean for you, for where you were at, for what you were doing, for where you find yourself? Because I admire Mary. I admire her deeply. I admire her passion. I admire her willingness to just give it all. And yet she also challenges me deeply because I realize in many ways I'm not like her yet. And a part of me wants to pretend I am. And make excuses, it's because I'm British, it's because I'm Adam, it's because I'm an introvert, it's because I'm this, it's because I'm that, it's because I'm the other. And I can, we can all do this. We can all find reasons why we're not like that. And of course, it's not about being an extrovert. It's not about, it's about passionately loving Jesus out of who we are. Which will mean different things for different people. So this is not a like, yeah, but you know you. And I'm sure you know what it means for you to love Jesus more limitlessly and more passionately and less prudently and less cautiously. I was thinking about this the other day. Well, this morning actually. In terms of going back to creating environments, for some of us, we have been waiting a long time to talk about Jesus with some of our friends because we're just waiting for the right moment that Jesus can come in. The moment's now. It's just now. Stop waiting to create the environment. Stop waiting for the perfect conversation. Stop waiting for the perfect time. It doesn't exist. It just doesn't exist. In what ways is God gently or not judging you to, not judging you, he never does that, nudging you to express a more limitless, passionate, devoted, not as bothered what people think, not as caring about our reputations, love for him. And what might that mean? It will mean different things for different people. But I think it means something for everybody. And as I look towards Good Friday and Easter Sunday, and as I look towards the cross, and I look towards how limitlessly and passionately he loves me. I want to love him more like that. Amen.